Do you believe Lynn and Jeff and the Baseball and Barbecue Podcast are getting a cup of coffee in the big leagues as part of the Believe Network? This is Doug Scheiding of Road Cookers and Barbecue World Champion and guest host. And I can't wait to listen to the 40 million followers cheering for the upcoming show content. I believe. Do you? Episode 130 of Baseball and Barbecue. I am Len Aberman. I'm here with my incredible co-host, Jeff Cohen. Hello, Jeff. Hollywood! We are the show that has baseball. We have barbecue. So you can just join our show and get both, and then you don't have to go looking for it because it's here. Baseball and barbecue. And we have the very best of both baseball and barbecue on this show. We do. And on this episode, because Jeff, we have with us one of, well, you know, you, you know how we feel about this man. We have none other Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Every time we have him on, it's just our listeners benefit so much from from hearing him. What a storyteller. He's going to talk about we're going to talk about Jackie Robinson. Of course, this is Jackie Robinson, 75th year since he broke the color barrier. Of course, 1947. Of course, April 15th was Jackie Robinson Day. And we'll talk about that. We'll also talk about his podcast called Black Diamonds. Speaking of him is just amazing. It was it was so amazing that we had to break it up into two parts. Yes, we did, because we could have. Well, here's what we could have done. We could have said, sorry, Bob, we don't have any more time for you. And that would have been a disservice. And <laughs> and Jeff, we, we may have cried. So, yeah, we broke it into two parts because, Jeff, we also have our barbecue guest on this show, and that is Erica Blair. And who, she was a barrel of fun. I mean, such yeah. energy. Mm-hmm. She was fantastic. You know, Jeff, she won Barbecue Brawl season two. Oh, yes, I know. <laughs> and we'll talk about that in the interview. Yeah. And you know what, Jeff? She also is a two-parter. She is. We could have once again said, sorry, Erica, we've got to go. <laughs> But we didn't. You know, Jeff, I love to say it all the time. This show 
baseball and barbecue. We are the Reese's peanut butter cups of podcasting. Two great things that go great together. And it is so evidenced on this show. We've got baseball with Bob Kendrick. We've got barbecue with Erica Blair. You know, you keep saying the Reese's pieces. I'm not a fan of Reese's. So, oh, oh, Jeff, 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 Jeff. We, we're going to, we, we, we may just have to bleep that out. <laughs> I can't, oh, how could you not be a, oh, I don't even want to talk about it. But, Jeff, what I do want to talk about is that our partners at Bet Online continue to be the number one source for all your betting needs and sports info. Find all of the latest sports developments, including updated odds on the NBA playoffs, fights, and even next season's futures. And don't forget that Major League Baseball is back as well. Who are you picking to win the World Series? Bet Online is your continued source for all your sports wagering needs, including live betting and your favorite Vegas casino and poker games. It's super easy to get started. So head to the website today or use your mobile device to join and use our promo code believe that's B L E A V to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit bet online where the game starts. And now Jeff, we should start with part one of our wonderful discussion with Bob Kendrick, baseball and barbecue fans. This is one that I look forward to every single time. And this is our third time having this gentleman on our show. He was our first. And as I've said before, you never forget your first. <laughs> this is just I'm, I'm looking at him on Zoom and I have to tell you the excitement that, that I have right now, because we get to speak to one of the I, I think such an ambassador for the game of baseball is this man, Bob Kendrick. One day, I think, will be in the Baseball Hall of Fame. That's right. I said it. <laughs> Deservedly so. I mean, I could say so much, but I don't want to take up the time. So, Bob, I'm just going to welcome you to Baseball and Barbecue. Jeff and I are so honored to have you back. Thank you for joining us. Well, number one, it's great to see you both. Thanks for having me back. And, and I appreciate the sentiment, you know, but we're all passionate about our game. And, and when you combine baseball and barbecue, and of course, you know how we all feel in Kansas City about barbecue. <laughs> you know, you cannot convince us that we don't have the best barbecue on the face of the planet here in Kansas City. So when you combine both of those elements, it's all good. You know what? And I just found I just found out that the Kansas City Royal was named after the Royal, the American Royal of the stockyard and, and the barbecue and all that. So I, I, I never knew that until this week. Yeah, no. And, and an interesting bit of, I guess, trivia relative to the name, the Kansas City Royals, is that Jackie Robinson played for the Kansas City Royals and he played for the Kansas City Royals at that time was a Los Angeles Winter League, an all-black winter league, uh, well, an all-black team that was playing in the L.A. Winter League, and it was managed by the great Negro Leaguer Chet Brewer, Chet Brewer from Leavenworth, Kansas, and uh, Jackie in 1945 played for the Kansas City Royals before the Kansas City Royals 
He came to Kansas City. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. You, you know, Bob, you, you brought up Jackie Robinson. And of course, this, this, so we might as well just let's start right there. This is the 75th anniversary of Jackie Robinson joining the Brooklyn Dodgers. Change I, history. I change history. Yeah, cha- yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And for the know, better, just, by the way, change history for the better. For the better. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And there are still books being written. I mean, it, it's amazing that it's just an incredible thing. As a matter of fact, there's a new book out that I, I believe it's Bob, you'll probably know better than us. I know we're going to be having the author on the show. It's called True, The Four Seasons of Jackie Robinson. Have you had the opportunity to read that book yet? Oh, no, I haven't yet. So thank you for tipping me off on it. I need to make sure that we have it here at the museum. I haven't started reading it yet. I'm just I'm looking at the press release that came with the book, but it's by Kastaya Kennedy. It looks like it's going to be there. Jeff, Jeff is on a Jeff's going to hold it up and show everyone on an audio only podcast. But and, 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 and I know Costa, Costa Kennedy, so that should make for a really interesting read. It's unbelievable that it's been it's 75 years. Is there is there any I mean, we could we could go on and on and on about that and that. But is there anything that you want to say about the, the 75th anniversary? Well, like most of the baseball world, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum is certainly looking forward to playing a significant role in a year-long 75th anniversary celebration. It won't stop on April 15th, Mm -hmm. not for us. We are debuting a brand new traveling exhibition called Barrier Breakers. And the Barrier Breaker exhibit chronicles all of the players who broke their respective major league teams' color barriers. So from Jackie Robinson joining Brooklyn on April 15, 1947, through Elijah Pumpsy Green being the last to complete the integration cycle 12 years later with the Boston Red Sox. And this is our gift in celebration and commemoration of that milestone moment that Jackie Robinson took the field. And as you mentioned in in your lead in, forever changing the game of baseball, but more importantly, forever changing this country for the better. Mm -hmm. And that we don't ever want to be lost on people. Baseball has done, and I say baseball, Major League Baseball in particular, has done an extraordinary job of promoting the real magnitude of the moment that Jackie Robinson took the field with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Where we feel there's a gap is the fact that we haven't talked nearly enough about where Jackie came from. And, and, and of course, we know that it all began from a baseball perspective, playing in the Negro Leagues with the great Kansas City Monarchs. And and that's a story that we're trying to make sure comes to the forefront. Because as I always remind people, before he was number 42, he was number five with the Kansas City Monarchs. And had it not been for the Kansas City Monarchs, the Negro Leagues, and the great city of Kansas City, we don't get Jackie Robinson. And and that is something that the museum has been pushing for the last decade or so to make sure that people are reminded. Because again, the story just doesn't start the day he takes a step on the field with with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And hopefully we can continue to push that agenda and help people understand. Because I think in the end, 
it helps people really understand how just how important the Negro Leagues were. When we examine and chronicle the other baseball integration pioneers, you'll find that the moral majority of them all came out of the Negro Leagues. Yeah, and, and there's only a handful of those guys who integrated over the course of those 12 years that didn't play in the Negro Leagues. And, and so it speaks to, again, the significance of the Negro Leagues, but it also helps you understand why that breaking of the color barrier signal the demise of the Negro League. So as you can well imagine, you can't siphon all this great talent out and expect that your league is still going to survive. And really there was no replenishing system. So all of that is part of the bigger picture of Jackie's breaking of the color barrier. And, and so we will welcome, I don't know if you guys heard the story of the historical marker that was at his birthplace in Cairo, Georgia, yeah. that was defaced when somebody mm -hmm. propelled a shotgun blast mm -hmm. and destroyed the marker to the point that it couldn't be repaired. Major League Baseball stepped in and built, I'm sorry, stepped in and replaced the damaged marker. They just recently had a ceremony to unveil it. But thanks to our friends over at the Georgia Historical Society, that defaced marker is now coming home to Kansas City, to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And we will unveil that on Jackie Robinson Day because it serves to remind us of the enduring legacy of Jackie Robinson, but also the fact that there's still so much work left to do as we continue to try and bridge race relations in our country. And those, discussions, particularly as they relate to race and sports, should emanate here in Kansas City at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And so we're honored to welcome that defaced marker home so that we can continue to have this needed dialogue. And like I said, to serve as a reminder. Right. And Bob, Jackie Robinson, there's so many stories out there that are untold. And Len and I had the privilege of talking to Irene Hodges and she told us, and we never knew this until we talked to her, that on the day of Gil Hodges' funeral 50 years ago, Jackie Robinson was, was almost inconsolable in the back of the car. Where, uh, And he said it was one of the worst days of, of his life, except for his, his son. And he, could, and he was very in inconsolable. And, and Gil Hodges' son was in, was in the car with him, and they were just crying together. It was just, just those little things. And also, another story, which I just came across this week when Tommy Davis, the great Dodger, passed away. And he said the reason why he signed with the Dodgers is because Jackie Robinson called him on the phone at his house. And he could not believe it. It was just yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. You know, who, who, yeah. who says that? No. Yeah, no, no, no. If Jackie Robinson calls you, I don't know if there's a greater recruiting tool that, that there could be. You know, uh, it's kind of like Cool Papa Bell, who found Ernie Banks playing in Dallas for the, uh, a team, a, a semi-pro team called the Dallas Black Giants. Mm -hmm. And Cool Papa Bell calls Buck O'Neill and says, Buck, I got one for you. And Buck says, can he pick it? Cool says, yeah, he can pick it. And, and Buck signs Ernie Banks basically sight unseen based on Cool Papa Bell's recommendation. Well, if Cool Papa Bell recommends you, chances are you can play. And so that's pretty much the same. If Jackie Robinson says, hey, you should sign with the, with the Dodgers, well, you pretty much going to sign with the Dodgers. 
Yeah, that's probably the best recruiting tool you could probably ever get. Absolutely. <laughs> Bob, I, I have been listening to you. You know, it, it's so funny because to say you have a podcast and we have a podcast is like, it's like night and day. It's it's it, it, it's that you are you are at one level, and we're we're like we're just not we're not worthy, you know. <laughs> but you have this Black Diamonds podcast. I love it. Mm-hmm. It is incredible. I just listened to the two episodes that you had on Hank Aaron or Pork Chop or hammer and hank or however the man the names that he'll go by we wanted to have him i i will tell you that is one of my big regrets is that we never had hank aaron on and and i get the feeling from from listening to all these uh everyone talking about him that he would have come on with us he seemed like just a beautiful person I, could you talk about Henry Aaron, who unfortunately we we lost recently? And could you could you give us some insight? You know, there's still a void in my heart. There's a piece of my heart that's missing after we lost the man who was really my childhood idol, my all-time favorite baseball player, and the only person, guys, that I've ever been starstruck by. <laughs> and to the day that he died, anytime I was in his presence, I was starstruck. I would forever be the almost 12-year-old kid who circled the bases in, in my parents' living room when Henry Aaron hit home run 715 to break Ruth's record in 1974 in Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. I am 80 miles away in little bitty Crawfordville, Georgia, a town of 500 people. And I'm in my parents' living room. And as my childhood idol is circling the bases there in Atlanta's Fulton County Stadium, I'm circling the bases in my mother's living room. So she had an old (laughs) couch that was first base. Her old TV was second base. She had another old couch that was third base. And her recliner was home plate. So as my childhood idol was touching them all, I'm touching them all. And, and that's the kind of reverence that I had for Henry Aaron. And so when he comes to visit the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum for the first time in 1999, and this was my second year on the job at the museum as a full-time employee of the museum, and the late, great Buck O'Neill was out of town. So guess who draws the assignment? of touring Mr. Aaron. You guessed it, old Bob. (laughs) And guys, I was a nervous wreck. Let me tell you, man, I'm at home and I'm laying out, you know, all my clothes. I'm pulling stuff out the closet. I'm laying it all out. My wife thought I was crazy. She's like, what is wrong with you? I said, look, (laughs) you don't understand. This is Henry Aaron. And so we get to the museum. There's a throng of media that had gathered. See, in 1999, Major League Baseball was honoring Mr. Aaron for the 25th anniversary of his breaking of Ruth's record. And it's sad to say, guys, that it took him 25 years before he could finally exhale and really enjoy what many thought to be the most prestigious sports accomplishment of all time, 
because of all the hate and vitriol that had come his way as he was chasing Ruth's record. And so 25 years later, baseball had set him up on this tour. The Kansas City Royals had worked with MLB to bring him here to Kansas City. They arranged the opportunity for him to come to the museum. And to my great fortune, Buck was out of town. And so they get me mic'd up. We got all this media, Mr. Aaron and his wife, Billy, and I'm taking them on a tour of the museum. We get to what is my favorite photograph in the entire museum. And really, it's just a nondescript photograph of a then 18-year-old Henry Aaron standing at the train station in Mobile, Alabama. I'm sure you guys seen the picture. Yep. So he couldn't weigh more than 150, 160 pounds at that time. He's very frail. He looks somewhat afraid. He's about to go join the Indianapolis clowns in the Negro. Mm -hmm. This is 1952. And at that time, he was a skinny, cross-handed, hitting shortstop. So in the case of Mr. Aaron, he was a right-hand hitter who was hitting with his left hand on top. And as you both know, that is unorthodox. The theory is that you break the wrist hitting in that manner. Well, Henry Aaron is knocking the cover off the baseball in a highly unorthodox fashion. When it gets to the clowns, they reluctantly put the right hand on top because they didn't want to tinker with this kid's swing. And the rest, as we say, is history. And so he had seen that picture before, but it had been a long time since he had seen it. And we stopped there and we started to tease him because as you mentioned earlier on, as we were talking about Mr. Aaron and the various names that he had, they did call him pork chops when he played for the clown because apparently all Mr. Aaron ate when he played with the clowns was pork chops and fries. And so we get there and the late Don Motley, who was the executive director of the museum at that time, he said, hey, why did they call you pork chop? And Mr. Aaron says, I guess that was the only thing I knew how to order off the menu. So he found something and he stuck with it. But the thing that I admire the most about that picture, well, there are actually two things. Number one, if you notice that picture, there's a cardboard, almost like duffel bag right by his foot. And he told me, he says, Bob, I may have had two changes of clothes in that bag, a dollar fifty cents in my pocket, and a ham sandwich my mama had made me going to go chase that dream. And it worked out pretty well for the hammer. Other reason that I love that photograph so much is that it does serve as a point of validation because we know what Mr. Aaron accomplished at the major league level. But still, there are a lot of people who did not know that his career began in the Negro Leagues. And in its own way, he does validate the other guy that I may have been talking about before you get to that epic photograph. So I'm telling people about the likes of Cool Papa Bell and Josh Gibson and Hilton Smith and Leon Day and Bullet Rogan, you know, the list, Martin DeHigo, the list goes on and on. And and I know people are very respectful. They're like, well, Bob, I'm sure they were pretty good, but I don't know if they were as good as you say they were. And then you get to this picture of him, a young Henry Aaron. And all of a sudden, these other guys, I think people look at them a little bit differently now. When you learn that a young Henry Aaron or a young Willie Mays or a young Ernie Banks or a young 
uh, Roy Campanella, they all come out of the Negro Leagues, maybe you can accept that there just might have been some guys who played before them that we don't know that were just as good. And I know it's scary to think, y'all, that might have been better than Henry Aaron and Willie Mays. Now, that is frightening to think that there were two players on this, this earth that was better <laughs> than Henry Aaron and Willie Mays. But it just may have been possible. And a lot of these players from the Negro Leagues who mainstream sports fans missed out on, they don't know about them and they should know about them. And they represent those players that had kind of toiled in anonymity for so long before this museum kind of rose to its prominence. And so I love talking about Henry Aaron. I, it, I never get tired of talking about Henry Aaron. And the other thing that he said to me, and, and this, is, this is pretty amazing when you think about it. He said, I didn't know if I was leaving home to go play with kids my own age or grown men. And as we know, he was going to go play with grown men. Now, he more than, than acquitted himself quite well. But that's the thing. There was no minor league to bring you up to that level. No, 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 no. They threw you in the pond. And, and you're going to either sink or you're going to swim. And, and, and that was kind of their, you know, learning, their baptism, so to speak. But the other side of this is that older Negro Leagues player took care of them. Yeah. They shielded them as best as they could from the cruelties of Jim Crow. And as a result, that young Negro League player, when they left, they never forgot that veteran Negro Leaguer who took care of them. They took their spirit with them to the major leagues. And, and that's the thing that I look in, you know, those times that I had in many occasions to spend with Mr. Aaron. But I tell y'all now, every time I was around him, I was that 12-year-old kid. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And, and thank you about Black Diamonds. I, I'm so proud of what we've been able to do oh, with it's... folks over at Sirius XM Radio. And mm -hmm. for that episode that you talked about, I got an opportunity to talk with both Howard Bryant, who I think wrote the quintessential book on Henry Aaron, and my good friend Dusty Baker, who yes. was there with Henry Aaron when he was going through that entire ordeal of chasing Ruth's record and for those who may not understand what that was like for him, he got some close to a million pieces of hate mail. His family is in hiding. He doesn't know if he's going to make it around the bases when he does break the record. And it's all because this black man and this black man in the deep south was about to break a record that no one thought would ever be broken. And there were some people who were not happy about it and how he handled himself. And you think about this, guys. We were just talking about Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier in 1947, 27 years after he breaks the color barrier. Henry Aaron is receiving the same level of hate and vitriol that welcomed Jackie Robinson into the major league. Yeah, that's just, yeah, that's it, just it's horrible. It's, it's, it's amazing to think. Yeah. You know, but when Henry Aaron broke that record, keep remembering the video and Vince Scully saying there's, you know, 50,000 people in the deep south cheering him on. Standing up. 
a yeah. standing ovation for a black man in the deep south. Yeah. So yes. it wasn't yeah. that everybody was opposed to Mr. Aaron breaking the record. You know, as my friend Buck O'Neill would say, and he said it all the time, man, there always been more good people than bad people in this world. Always have been, always will be. You know, and, and the good people understood what this was all about. And, and they wanted to support. But you also had another sector that all they knew was hate. And unfortunately, it was all kind of attached to the color of the man's skin, not to the content of his character, not to what he represented. You know, having spent so much time with Mr. Aaron, I don't know how you could not like Henry Aaron. Henry Aaron represented everything that is great about this country. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, Bob, when I'm listening to your show, Black Diamonds, and I hear everyone talking about the just the the hate mail and how he was in a hotel you know when when he would stay in the hotel he had to register in one room and sleep in another and i am when you hear this the fact that he broke the record the fact that he was able to do that is unbelievable because He's standing at the plate. Forget rounding the bases. He could have been there. There were no metal detectors then. There was no people could have walked in that stadium. It is unbelievable the fact that he stood there and was able to play. It's just I can't imagine somebody else being able to do that. That it, it's just it, a testament it, to him. It's hard to fathom. It, it, it really is. And as we discussed in the podcast, particularly with with Dusty in the episode with Dusty Baker, you know, he had to spend the entire offseason of 1973 because, you know, he had started already getting these death threats as he was Mm -hmm. getting closer and closer. And as I as I share in the episode, there were no idle death threats for a black man and particularly for a black man in the deep south. You know, you had already seen. Martin Luther King assassinated. You had seen Malcolm X assassinated. You had seen John F. Kennedy assassinated. So there were no hollow threats. So all of this stuff had to be taken seriously. And there were snipers in the ballpark that night. You know, and when those two kids run on the field, I think there was a collective gas because people were concerned that they were going to try to do something to hurt Mr. Eric. They were just coming out to celebrate. But as you may recall in that episode, yes. he tells the story of how his bodyguard had a binocular case that he wore around his neck. And in that case was a 38 snub-nosed pistol. And when those kids ran out on the field, his bodyguard had reached into the case. And fortunately, no one got trigger happy because what was this tremendous accomplishment could have turned to a tremendous tragedy. And even Mr. Aaron's mother, and this is the this is the this is the love of a mother. You know, uh, you know, I'm sure fathers love their children too, but not like their mothers. When he gets to home plate, if you go back and look at the video, she purposely turns him so that she's in front of him. She was basically prepared to shield her baby. Mm-hmm. He's ready to take a bullet for her baby. Mm-hmm. And that's a mother's love there. And that's what he talks about how he she gave him the, the, the biggest bear hug 
that he ever got. He didn't know his mother could hug so hard. Can you imagine the fear that she had? You know, and so all of this kind of came out in 1999 when he comes to the museum 25 years later. We have a town hall gathering right across the street from the museum at the gym theater and the place was filled to the rafters. And he talked about how challenging it was for him 25 years later. And then after that, we go up to the mezzanine level of the gym theater and me, his wife, Billy, and Mr. Aaron, we sit down over a platter of Gates barbecue ribs. There you go. So I was literally <laughs> sitting there. I had the opportunity to literally chew the fat with, with my childhood idol. Fellas, it doesn't get any better than that. No, it doesn't. That by far is my greatest day in baseball. <laughs> <laughs> and every time I would see Mr. Aaron and his wife, the first thing they would say to me was, you didn't bring in the ribs with you? <laughs> <laughs> Bob, but when you were telling the story when he broke the, the, the home run record and those two guys went out on the on the field, did those two guys know, well, did they ever find out how close they came to, you know, a tragedy happened? I think they probably did later on. And, and the beautiful thing about it is that Mr. Aaron struck up a relationship with those two guys. Yeah, no, they eventually would go out and have dinner in the whole nine yards you know, later on, because that's Mr. Aaron. That's the beauty of Henry Aaron. Yeah. And, and so I think later on, they realized, number one, that wasn't the smartest thing that they could have done. Because <laughs> I'm sure they spent the night in the pokey, you know, after doing that. But uh, fortunately, tragedy was averted. Good, good. <laughs> Bob, I, I want to change gears a little here and, and talk about the, the game today. As we know, the African-American has very little representation in the game today. I think around 5% where in the 70s and, and early 80s, it was much, much higher. And I wanted to ask you, I know that Major League Baseball has academies in the Caribbean, in Dominican, in Venezuela, Puerto Rico. I, I keep thinking, why can't they have an academy in the major cities in, in the United States to help promote that? Yeah, no, and they've started to do that. Okay. So the first academy was built in Compton. There's one in New Orleans. There's one in Kansas City, right behind the museum, which we're so tremendously proud of. D.C. now has an academy. Uh, Cincinnati has an academy. So this, that model that you referenced, Jeff, is starting to come to fruition in the states so that we can collaborative, collaboratively, collectively try to bridge the economic gap that has prevented a lot of urban kids from playing our game. Now, ultimately, if a child doesn't like baseball, then they don't like it. But what we don't want to see happen is that a child cannot afford to play this game, so they never get to experience it to find out whether or not they like it or not. And the fact that Major League Baseball, Major League Baseball's Players Association, and now the new Player Alliance, along with the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, are really working to try and change that dynamic that you referred to, to get this thing trending in the other way. And I, baseball is this time tradition kind of game. It is a process. You're, you're gonna go to the minor leagues more times than not, and you're gonna have to work your way up to the show. And that doesn't appeal to a lot of people. 
And because we live in such a microwave society, number one, we want instantaneous yep. gratitude, <laughs> wealth, success. And that's not the process in baseball. But we're starting to see the minor leagues more populated with Black players, American Black players. Because there are a lot of Black players that play. They speak Spanish. Right. And but American born black players, we're starting to see the minor leagues more populated. And as we start to see that, we can start to kind of project when we're going to see this increase of American born blacks getting onto major league rosters. You know, as I mentioned, we live in a microwave society. The one thing that we are not in this society, we ain't patient. (laughs) And this is going to require some patience. Because we have to develop, we have to create, we have to develop, we have to sustain. And, and, and I think everybody is committed to doing that. Now, my place in this, when I say my, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum is providing a place where these kids can come and see themselves, see themselves in these positions, see themselves in their full glory, see folks who look like them, who played this game, y'all as well as anyone ever played this game. But you know what? Not only did they play the game, they owned teams and they managed teams and they were coaches and traveling secretaries and team physicians. They fulfilled every role that you could fulfill within the business of the game of baseball. And that is important as well. I think our sport is the most aspirational of all of them. You have to see yourself. You have to see it to believe it. And the thing about the Negro Leagues is why you had so many kids back then when basically we had our own league, you know. And, and so they saw these heroes of the Negro Leagues every single day in every aspect of life because it didn't make any difference how much money Satchel Page or Buckle Neal or Cool Papa Bell or Josh Gibson made. They living in the same segregated areas that I'm living in. And I saw them in the restaurants. I saw them in the barbershop. I saw them conducting themselves, not just as great athletes, but as great people. And thus, I wanted to emulate that. And, and that's all part of it. And that, to me, is what the museum provides, is this basis so that they can see their place in this game and know that this is every very much attainable and that there, that as a race, we have such a proud legacy in the game of baseball that should not be lost, and it now has to be carried forward. So I'm really excited with this new season of Black Diamonds because we explore the integration of our game, how this all kind of transpired. And, and I've gotten all ready to sit down and talk to the likes of some young Black stars in our game Cedric Mullins, Mookie Betts, Tim Anderson, you know, just to name a few to help, you know, having a great conversation with them about what Jackie Robinson means to them, what they mean to the next generation of aspiring young black ball players. And and so, and then we'll delve deeper into how Jackie Robinson, as we like to say, became the man to walk, the first man to walk on the moon. Leonard? Who is better than Bob Kendrick? Uh, that's a very short list. And he is at the top of it. There is, is nobody. He is, you know, we keep saying it. He's the, the great ambassador for the game. 
mm-hmm. definitely check out his podcast, Black Diamonds. If you're ever in Kansas City, go to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Ask for Bob. He is just uh, what a wealth of knowledge. That museum is he has done so much with the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum as its president, as somebody who has had to do any kind of fundraising. If there's anybody who's had to do fundraising, they understand how difficult it is and what he's done for that museum and the attention that he's brought to it. And it's just, it's, it's incredible what he's done. It's, it's amazing. And of course, as we said, it's 75 years since Jackie Robinson played for the Brooklyn Dodgers. It's hard to believe that it's 75 years, of course, uh, I was just a little kid at the time. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, you know what, Jeff? I want to ask you this. There are moments. There are moments in. We're going to stick with baseball since it is baseball. There are moments in baseball history that you could go back to. You know that if you could go back to, which would you pick? And I have to say that it it doesn't have to be the game that Jackie Robinson first played, but oh, to see him play in a game for the Brooklyn Dodgers in Brooklyn, that must have been an amazing experience. I'd like to see Satchel Page pitch because one of his pitches is his b-ball. And that's well, got to be a great pitch. You know what his b-ball is? Tell us. It's be where he wants it to be. <laughs> that's the b-ball. <laughs> yes, I would have. Yes, I would have. Of course, I would uh, uh, to see Satchel Page pitch. You know, yes. Len, last week you, you did say it was uh, Jackie Robinson, uh, April 15th, Brooklyn Dodgers, 1947. But this past year, they also celebrated Jackie Robinson Day all across major leagues. But also at, at City Field, there's also another special occasion. It was the unveiling of the Tom Seaver statue. And, you know, I am the biggest Tom Seaver fan. And yes. it was long overdue to see that statue finally been unveiled. Did you know that there's only two pitches in history with 3,000 strikeouts, 300 wins, and an ERA of under three, and it's Tom Seaver and Walter Johnson? That's the list. Wow. And I haven't been to City Field yet, but I've seen the pictures, and it looks magnificent. I'm looking forward to it, of course, and there's nothing that can be done. It, it's, a, it's an honor that is long overdue. At least his family has gotten the chance to, to see it. But the fact that Tom Seaver never got to see that statue is just, it's sad. But at least the current Mets owner, Steve Cohen, who, uh, Jeff, are you still doing research? Have you found anything that makes him think you're related? I'm not giving up. <laughs> At least he's doing he's doing the right thing. That's yes. you know. And if uh, you want to reach your show, give us a call at 516-855-8214. Email us baseball and bbq at gmail.com. Our Instagram is baseball and barbecue with barbecues all spelled out. We have a Twitter, tweet us baseball and bbq. Leave a comment on our Facebook page, baseball and bbq. And our website is www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. And please rate and review us. So, Jeff, our next guest won Barbecue Brawl Season 2. Do you think you could have won, Jeff, if you were on there? Uh, No doubt. Yeah, that's what I figured. It's a good thing you weren't. But she won, and part one of the interview with her is wonderful. So 
give it a listen. Erica Blair Roby is Food Network's Master of Q champion, television personality, wine expert, attorney, award-winning cookbook author, and social media influencer who is known for her cultural-driven approach to barbecue. Erica is also the creator and host of her digital series, The Pit Stop with Blue Smoke Blair, which highlights the passions, struggles, and dreams of pitmasters around America. From barbecue restaurants to barbecue food trucks, Erica shares the universal message of barbecue love found throughout the great, this great country. From Dayton, Ohio, welcome Erica Blair Roby. Welcome, Erica. <laughs> hey, hey, y'all. <laughs> Erica, can I just start this with, I love when we have a guest from Ohio because <laughs> I get to tick Jeff off. <laughs> so <laughs> here we go. Erica, I'm a, I'm a New Yorker, have been my whole life, but spent a number of years in Ohio. I am a OU grad, Bobcat. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then fast forward many years, and my son went to Kenyon College in Gambier, Ohio. Are you serious? That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> so I know you're from Dayton, and I spent a lot of time in various parts of Ohio, Cincinnati, Columbus, Cleveland, um, I've been to Dayton. I've been to Chagrin Falls. I've been so that area. Yeah. So <laughs> I had to I have to bring that up. It ticks Jeff off. But every time. <laughs> <laughs> and now, Jeff, now you can go. <laughs> well, again, uh, thank you, Erica. Would you like Erica Blair? Is it Erica Blair Roby? What's the, it doesn't matter. OK, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Just. Doing my research, you're kind of relatively new to the world of barbecue. I think by 2019. Yes. So tell us how you got to uh, into this. Well, you really grew and became this influencer and and, and barbecue expert. How did how did that all that happen? Um, a lot of trial and error, uh, a lot of YouTube videos. But no, so my dad, he's from New Orleans originally, and, you know, he's always been a pit master, but it, like, it wasn't a thing. It wasn't trendy. It was just like a way of life. So I never gave much thought to it. And then once I had my own family and I had a newborn, I kind of just like got back into the barbecue buzz uh, because my dad started talking about retirement and he was like, we were going through his bucket list and we were going through a bunch of weird things of like what we would do as a family. And he mentioned starting a barbecue restaurant or a food truck. And I was like, okay, that's something I can get behind. So I was like, all right, now it's going to figure out how to do it and how to run it. And I, I started watching all the barbecue shows because I was like, well, if we're going to do this, like I need to know how to cook too, just in case like you don't come in or everybody quits on us or something happens. And so I started watching the barbecue shows and they were like competition barbecue. And I'd never heard of that before. And so then I saw this and I'm like, you know, I'm seeing like all this like trash talking and fire and meat. And, you know, it's just like, it's like a rumble. And I was like, this is right up my alley. I can do this. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I enrolled in barbecue school with Harry Sue because I was living in San Diego at the time and he was in Diamond Bar, California. So I was like, well, I could go there on a weekend and I could learn. And then I was in a bunch of barbecue chat rooms and people were like, oh, the competitions, if you want to get in them, they fill up really fast. So you need to like sign up and save your name. And so I, of course, overdid it. And I signed up for like four barbecue competitions back to back. Like I still couldn't even manage fire yet. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going. (laughs) And so um, Harry Sue's class came up and I drove up there and all of a sudden, like, I just got nervous and it kind of hit me like what I was doing. And um, I didn't even have time to prepare for it because as soon as I rounded the corner, like there he was, he was just standing right there. And I was so scared. I was the only woman in the class. And I was like, they're going to know I'm a fraud. You know, they're going to sniff, sniff out my fear. I'm going to get run out of here, you know? And then all of a sudden I sit down and it is just the most welcoming, most amazing, most constructive and helpful group of people that I've ever been around professionally. And everybody there, there was just, there was no judgment. They were like, we are all here to learn barbecue. It doesn't matter how long you've been doing it. Like we're here to learn and we're going to do this. And now we're a family. And it really just, it kind of just changed something in me. And I felt this is where I'm supposed to be. You know, maybe I won't, go farther with it than this. And, you know, I'll just be the queen of the backyard or something, but this is cool. So then Harry was like, who's competing? Who has a competition team? And I was just like, oh God, I was like, no, no, no. And uh, so every barbecue person, competition team, you have to come up with a name. So I've been working on a name back and forth. And then I finally had one. I had never said it out loud or anything like that. And so then the guy next to me, he like hits me and he's like, raise your hand. You're competing. You know, you got four competitions coming up. And so I was like, Oh crap. All right, I'll do it. And so like I raised my hand. And so Harry came over and he's like, what's the name of your competition team? And I just like stood up and I was like, blue smoke Blair. That's me. That's who I am. And like, it's something so (laughs) trivial, like, you know, nobody else cared. But to me at that moment, I felt that I had breathed life into something that I had just created something. I didn't know what it was, but I knew that I was onto something. And that's really how it started. Wow. That's a great origin story. Len? (laughs) (laughs) This this podcast is unique as far as we have baseball and barbecue. You are on, obviously, to talk about barbecue. But based on the research I've done, from attorney to sommelier to barbecue, you know, a champion. Okay. Master of Q. I have a feeling that if you had gone to a class that was given by like, I don't know, trout, you know, uh, of the angels or, or some, you know, player, right. The next thing, you know, you'd hit 400. I just have a feeling that you just somehow are good at whatever you try. (laughs) Oh man. I was in a fast pitch softball and I wasn't too good at that, but <laughs> but all I think right, I got relegated to taking the score for the next season. <laughs> <laughs> so take us. Let's let's go on the journey. Let's go on the journey with you. And and I've done some research, so I I, I know a little bit about the journey. But our listeners uh, may not be familiar. You started out as an attorney, right? As a matter of fact, in one of the episodes of. Uh, barbecue brawl. I, I know Bobby Flay said, "Okay, counselor, 
<laughs> that was probably my nickname on the show. <laughs> so how do you go from that to this? Yeah. So I always wanted to be in the restaurant and hospitality industry. And my parents, they were like, no, you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer. So pick one. <laughs> okay. They're like, we want you to move out of our house. <laughs> <laughs> And so I was like, well, I'm definitely not going to be a doctor. I was like, but I could, I could be a lawyer. I'm pretty good at uh, speaking and advocating for myself and others. So I enrolled in law school. And then um, 2008, I graduated. I went to Rutgers Camden in New Jersey. And then I graduated and it was the financial collapse. And I was like, oh my gosh, I had moved down to Miami, Florida at the time. And I knew I wanted, I was like, if I'm going to be an attorney, it's either going to be in Miami or it's going to be in LA. Like there's no in between for me. And I was interning at the public defender's office because I wanted to do criminal law. I wanted to do trial. I really wanted to do public interest. And so I interned there and they were having a hiring freeze. Everybody was having a hiring freeze. And I was so worried because I knew that my student loans were going to be due. You know, I had rent to pay on this apartment and just living. So I would volunteer there for free for half the day. Then I would drive all the way across town and do document review all night. And that was, you know, how I paid the bills. And so then they offered me an interview and I was like, okay, this is a really good thing. They offered me an interview. And so I just, I prepped for it like crazy. You know, I acted like I was doing the OJ case, you know, <laughs> I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to ace this interview. I'm going to do it. And so I gave my heart and my soul in that interview and they basically hired me on the spot, like kind of unofficially. And I was so excited. And then I found out that I think like 200 plus applicants had applied and there was only one spot that was given and I got it. So I was so excited and I did criminal law. I worked at the public defender's office and, you know, at 24, when, you know, you are handling people's lives and, you know, everybody's kind of discounting you because, you know, you're young, you don't really have much of a worldview. You look, you still look like a little kid and you're up here, you know, in court. And so I really had to battle a lot as a public defender because I would walk into a courtroom and basically everybody in there was against me. Like everybody wanted to see me fail. So when you go through that at such like a young age in the beginning of your evolution of you and your journey, you just get really tough. You either fail or you get tough. And I got really tough and I learned not to let things bother me and to just, you know, go for the Hail Mary, like do it, you know, go all out because that's all you got. And so I did that for years. And I always said that, I said, once I get either a death penalty case or a murder case and, you know, it's the right one, then that's going to be me Then I'm going to go out on my own. And then all of a sudden I was walking down the hallway one day and one of the older attorneys, he calls me over. He's like, hey, what are you doing this afternoon? Uh, I have an attempted murder case, a double attempted murder case. Do you want in on it? A second chair. And I'm just like, yes, please. And so I just I ran in there. I started prepping. I started reading over the file. And to my horror, like I realized it was a very young kid who was on trial and he was in repeat offender court, which is rock court in Miami. And basically anything you're getting convicted of, you're going away for a really, really long time if not for your life. And I realized reading it, that there were so many discrepancies and I realized that he was innocent. And my, just like my heart, I was like, this is it. This is why I was put here. You know, I got to fight for this kid because he's innocent. He might not, he might not be the perfect person, but he didn't do this. 
And so I went in there and I fought and I fought. And then I knew I looked, I read the jury instructions and I realized that like, if they read from the top of the page, that meant not guilty. If they started reading from the bottom of the page, that meant guilty. And so I was just holding, I was holding the boy's hand. I was fixing his tie and he couldn't read that well. So, you know, I was literally taking his finger and helping him read every word. So he knew what was going on. And I was just praying the whole time. And then all of a sudden when the foreman got up and they started reading, I saw that they were reading from the top of the page and I knew, I knew that my, my journey at the public defender's office had come to a close that I had finally done something that all those years of studying, they paid off and uh, he was crying. His family was crying. And when they took the handcuffs off him and he walked out with me, it was just, it, I knew, I knew that it was time that season had passed for me that I'd done what I needed to do. And um, so I was trying to figure out what to do next. And I did like civil law for a while, but I was just so bored. I, I wanted to be back in trial. I wanted to be back in the courtroom and, you know, civil law is about money and nobody's, nobody's trying to go to trial on that <laughs> because it's going to cost regardless. And then at the same time, I started barbecuing again on my free time, just, you know, kind of meditating and um, just in my backyard, I had a little gas grill. It was nothing, it was nothing impressive. And I, but I started kind of getting a little more obsessed with it and stuff like that. And then I remember um, I would stay up all night on YouTube watching like Aaron Franklin videos and just random barbecue videos. Oh yeah, good, good videos. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, I mean, it's like three in the morning and I'm under the covers, like looking all crazy. And um, (laughs) so I started, I started doing that. I started kind of playing with it a little bit again and really paying attention And then at that point, my husband at the time, he got his dream job in Tampa, Florida. And so he was like, well, we got to move. This is my dream job. I want to go here. So at that point, I had to leave my law practice and basically start over in a new town with nothing. And short, short end of the story. It was awful. It was like the darkest period of my mm. life. I was, I've never been more miserable before. And I'm generally like a happy go lucky person. And I was just like, this is not working out. And then the relationship on top of that wasn't working out. And I was like, why did I do this? And so one day I was looking on Craigslist just for like a fun job or something to do. And a wine bar was hiring. And I was like, okay, I could, I could do that. That'd be fun. And I'll get to get out and talk to people and meet people. So I started working at this wine bar and I really loved it. And then I started learning about wine and like my family, they don't, they don't drink wine. They're not, they're not really drinkers. So this was my first experience uh, with wine and that it wasn't just, you know, something that comes in a box or, you know, (laughs) (laughs) like there's actually so much going on. So I started studying about wine and then I guess like on my computer, based on my search history, all of a sudden, like sommelier school started coming up and I couldn't even pronounce it. But um, so then I started looking at that and I applied to sommelier school after talking to a girl that was in Tampa who did it. And she was like, go do it. It's wonderful. You know, you can get paid for serving wine all day. And I was like, sold. (laughs) So I signed up and then my husband at the time, he had just quit his dream job to become a professional poker player. So I'm like, well, you're not really doing anything here either. So I was like, why don't we just go out to California? And he was just like, nope, I'm not going. You're going by yourself. And so I was like, okay. 
I was like, this season has passed too. All right, I'm going to California. So I dye my hair Beyonce blonde, buy all new clothes that I think are cool for California. And I head out there and I got into wine school and it was, I gotta honestly tell you, it was probably harder than law school. And that was a shock, but I was so committed because I had given up so much and all my friends back home, they were kind of like laughing at me. They're like, what are you doing? Are you having a midlife crisis? You know? And I was like, no, no, I'm going to do this. I, I want to do this. And uh, my parents had given me their blessing. They're like, you've done everything we've ever asked of you go do what you want to do. And I was like, thank you. I started taking the sommelier exams and they were so intense and they were so hard and the stress, like the stress was so intense. I remember we would go to school and from eight 30 in the morning until four, we would just be like drinking wine, tasting wine. Sounds fun. It wasn't because we were like, <laughs> we were like, no, this is studying. This is not social drinking. And so when the exam came, I flew to Arkansas because I was convinced that I was probably going to fail. So I didn't want to fail in front of all my friends and my teachers. So I like literally snuck out and got on Wait, the plane. So, so you went to, you went to Arkansas to take the sommelier exam. <laughs> It was the next one that was available. So I sneak out there. I sneak out there and I'm like, well, you know, if I take it and I fail and I just won't go back to the class, it's okay. And um, so we get in there and I take the exam and then the master sommeliers come out and they're like, well, as expected, only five of you passed and there's a room full of us. And I'm just like, oh no, my God. And so they start calling the names out. First name, second name, third name, not mine. And I'm just like, oh my God, everybody was right. Like, I'm, I can't believe I did this. What was I thinking? And then the fourth name was mine. And I was just like, thank you, God. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up getting a job in Napa. When I came back to California, I got a job in Napa and that was a dream. I mean, every day I walked through the vineyards to work, you know, the sun was on my face. Like I just felt, you know, the world around me and it was just such a, freeing and releasing feeling to know that I was really following my path. And I loved doing that. And then that winery, that winery, the owner got sick and they were going to shut down. So I ended up Marriott and it was in San Diego. So I'm like, okay, I'll head to San Diego. This is great. So I get in my car, pack my dogs up, drive down to San Diego. And it was amazing. And this is the first time that I actually got to work hand in hand with the kitchen. And so the chefs were so cool and they were very open and I would ask a million questions and they were teaching me everything. And I really loved that. And then all of a sudden, like I had this dream in my head. I used to, I used to have the Marriott little catalog because once you work for the Marriott, you can transfer to any of their properties in the world. So I'm in my head, I'm single, I'm a wine girl. I'm just going to, you know, be a player. And Oh, you're single now. Yeah, I'm single. I am so divorced and free. It's not even funny. (laughs) So I'm just like, I have this great apartment. And, you know, I'm like, I'm just going to go to London, Paris. I'll go anywhere, China. I'm going to work everywhere. And then literally the first week I got in San Diego, I met my future husband. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) So that ended that real quick. And so we got married. He's retired Navy now, but he was active duty and he had just come in uh, from a deployment. So he was like very intense. And I was like, oh, this is great. And so everybody in the town is like, Navy guys, watch out. (laughs) They're intense. And I was like, oh, I love it. (laughs) So then we get married. We have our son and now I'm homebound and I can't go anywhere because I have a newborn. So I have all day to play on the phone and, you know, 
try to keep this little baby alive. So I'm talking to my dad. And then, you know, that's when all of a sudden my dad started talking about barbecue. And I was like, I have time. I, I can do this. You know, I can't leave the house. So, you know, I'll do this. And he was like, well, go buy a smoker and, you know, start playing around. So I bought a smoker and then everything in San Diego is very tight. So when I, I didn't know much about fire management, the first thing I did was I went online and I bought a bunch of wood. So it was like a sale and it was like, oh, we'll deliver a cord of wood. And it was like 200 something dollars. And I didn't know what a cord of wood was. I thought it was like a little bundle, like, you know, a few little bundles. So I ordered this cord of wood and they're like, they're like, oh, do you have, um, they're like, do you have a lift gate or something? And I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about lift gate? Like, <laughs> what's happening here? <laughs> And so the guys come, the guys come to my tiny little house and I see a, like a full truck of wood and they're like dumping it in my driveway. And I, I just had like this total meltdown and I was like, no, you got to get this. Oh, you got to get this up. Oh my God. And so I told them my mistake and they, they thought it was really funny. So they, they packed up most of it and then they re they took it back. And what was even worse, like now that I'm actually seasoned, it was pine. So right. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I didn't know. This is the learning things. And then, I mean, when I started barbecuing, I got on Instagram and I got hooked up with the barbecue community there. And they were just so awesome. Uh, my friend Smokey Q, he's one of my best friends. And they, they once again, they were teaching me everything. You could ask any question. Nothing was off limits. And I really got better. And they started teaching me how to do Instagram, Instagram and barbecue and like how to present your food and everything like that. And it really got me better. And it got me to a place where I felt confident barbecuing, you know, putting it up there. And then one day I got a message in my Instagram. It was from a casting producer and they were like, Hey, we're casting for a show. We've come across your profile. We'd like to know if we could set up a Skype interview with you. And I thought that was fake. I was like, Oh, this is a scam artist. Nobody Skypes, you know, it's, it's 2020 now at this point. And, and so I took a screenshot and I sent it in my barbecue chat group. And one of the guys, he goes, no, this is real. I worked with them on another show you need to see if it's not too late. You need to call these people back. So, you know, I went back and I was like, Hey, Hey, it's me. I'm here. I'm here. They started the interview process and everything started going and I was so excited. And then all of a sudden I didn't hear from them for a year. So I was bummed out about that, but I was like, wow, like I was still on their radar. That's a really big compliment. And so I, I really got into competing once the world opened back up enough to compete. And I went to my first barbecue competition and it was in Kentucky. So I got a rental truck and I threw everything in the back and I drove down to Hazard, Kentucky. And I was like, hey, California, you were in California. <laughs> no, no, I am, I was back in Ohio. For oh, you're back in Ohio. Okay. <laughs> So Kentucky's not that terrible. Okay. I was like, whoa, yeah. I, yeah. I got disconnected from, okay. I got to follow the bouncing no. ball batter. No. Sorry. <laughs> from Ohio. Okay. And uh, I drove down the hazard Kentucky. And when I drive in, I'm just like, oh girl, what have you done? And I'm all by myself. Cause you know, I didn't have anybody who would like be able to do that. And I had my kid with my mom and dad and my husband. So I get there and I pull up and everybody's just looking at me like I have six heads. They're like, what are you here for? Like, 
<laughs> and I'm like, I'm here to compete. I'm in the barbecue competition. <laughs> and so the guy he kind of just like looks at me sideways and he's like, we're going to put you right up front. I want to be able to keep an eye on you. So I was like, okay. And so, you know, immediately I get out and like all these people who don't know me, they come over and they're like asking me questions and they're like, can we help you? Can we set up your tent? And then, you know, I told them, I was like, this is my first barbecue competition, you know? And they're just like, where's your team? And I was like, you're looking at it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and they just look horrified and they're just like, no, you know, who's going to run your boxes for you while you're prepping the next box? Who's going to do that? And I was like, yeah, I guess it's me today. And uh, they were just like, look, if you need, if you need a runner, if you need somebody to help you in this competition, we'll help you. And that's so crazy, you know, cause it's a competition, mm-hmm. you know, you're trying to win. Of course I was definitely no threat, but it was like, <laughs> it was like, wow, you guys were willing to like help me and lend support. And so they were just telling me, they were like, look, don't worry about, you know, trying to place or anything. Just try not to get disqualified. If you don't get disqualified, like that's a win for your first competition. And I was like, okay. And so I was out there doing my thing. I slept in my truck for probably like all of 10 minutes, you know, cause I was just so anxious and nervous and trying to figure everything out. I have my little Harry Sue notes from class and I'm like going through them by a little Coleman lantern, you know, trying to read everything I need to do. Finally, it it was over. I turned everything in on time and the award ceremony started and I came in dead last. Uh, but not <laughs> disqualified. <laughs> but you weren't disqualified. You were Jeff's right. But I finished and I did it by myself and I was really <laughs> proud. And people, you know, I started to get to know people. So then my next competition, I went with my mom because she was like, you're never doing that alone again. And this guy came over and he had been at the other competition. He's like, hey, I, I saw you over there. If you don't mind, can I show you like, you know, how to trim your brisket properly for competition and stuff like that. And he sat with me all through the night with just a little Coleman lantern. And he showed me how to do competition barbecue. And that was, that was just so sweet. And that was insane. And it was like nowhere else in the world would our paths have ever crossed, but for barbecue. And today he is actually one of my best friends. He's one of my mentors. He's cooking at Memphis in May with me next month. And it was, it was that barbecue love and that barbecue community. And I just, I really got excited. And then all of a sudden fast forward now to January of 2021, I get a phone call and it's food network this time. And they're calling and they're like, Hey, you're a finalist. You're not on the show yet, but you're a finalist. And, you know, we want you to, you know, cook a little more for us, but can you come down to Austin, Texas to be on this barbecue competition show? And I was like, let's go, let's do it. You know? And I was like, I I have nothing to lose. Let's go. Well, when I finally get there and I walk into the hotel, the first person I see is Rodney Scott. And I'm just like, okay. Oh God. (laughs) Oh sweet baby Jesus. I have gone too far. Like, (laughs) I was like, do I turn around now? Like, what do I do? And I went in there, you know, I got myself situated, but I did not unpack. 
I kept my suitcase packed. I called my dad. I told him, I was like, dude, I really messed up. I'm going to go by my middle name. So I don't embarrass the family. I, you know, like, I was like, I don't know what to do here. And he was just like, do you do whatever got you on the show? Keep doing that. He's like, don't lose your faith in yourself. Now don't lose your courage. He's like, it it took a lot to get you here and you're here and you're here for a reason. So don't forget that. And then, you know, showtime started and we got out there and I saw all the cameras and I saw the food network clock, you know, like I'm used to being, you know, in my underwear and pajamas on the couch, looking at the food network clock on TV, you know, being all judgmental. And now here's the clock in my face. And it's for me. Like (laughs) that was, I think that was like the most unnerving thing. And you really didn't have enough time to like get comfortable or anything. And all of a sudden, like it was showtime and everything just started and it was going so fast. And I saw the first episode and I don't remember most of it because I think I actually blacked out and my soul left my body. (laughs) So I couldn't tell you what I cooked, what I said, what I did, what I wore until I actually saw it back on TV. And as the show progressed, I mean, it got, it got really tough. I was around all these people that had a lineage and they had a history of in barbecue. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't have any of that. All I had was, you know, some Instagram. It was unnerving, but I knew I knew what I was capable of. And so I tried not to let that bother me. And then I also noticed like the judges, they are very honest. I mean, for better, for worse, they are very honest. And there were times when I was called everything but a child of God. But (laughs) (laughs) but the difference was, whereas the other pitmasters, some of them, They took it personally and there was a lot of egos involved. I listened to it because I was like, you're giving me clues on what I need to do so that I'm never here again, so that I can do what you're looking for. So I listened to everything they said and I took it into heart and I took it to make myself better. And I really appreciated that because I was like, where else would you ever get these amazing chefs and pit masters and foodies? Where else would you be able to have them try your food? You know, Erica from Dayton, Ohio, when would they ever try your food? And here they are. And they're telling you what they think about it. And they're telling you what to do better. And so I I actually looked forward to that. And then the next thing you know, people started dropping like flies and I was still there at this point. I had still not unpacked my suitcase. Uh, But I I realized, like, I just realized this is, you know, you have something, you're doing something right. And then I remember talking to Bobby one time and he was like, do you know how I did so well in my career on all my competitions? And I was like, no, please tell me what is it? Is there, is it a seasoning? What is it? Let me know. And he was like, I never cooked outside of myself. I only cooked what I know. He's like, and that's how I was able to be successful in all these. And I really took that to heart. At that point, I decided to switch. I saw that all, you know, all the other contestants, they're, you know, they're cooking what they know, you know, they're cooking Texas barbecue, they're cooking Carolina, you know, they're cooking Mm -hmm. Kansas City. And we weren't constrained by that. And so I realized I was like, you know what, I'm going to cook from my cultures, I'm going to cook what I cook at home, what my mother, my grandmother's, my grandfather, my dad, I'm going to start bringing who I am onto the plate. And if that gets me sent home, then it does, but it's okay. I'm going to go out my way and doing it my way. I, I quit trying to cook all the, you know, American barbecue styles and I cooked from my heritage and I cooked from Mm -hmm. my family. And the next thing I know I'm walking across the stage and I'm the master of Q. 
And that was, that's really the journey. So Leonard, isn't Erica Blair a bull of energy? She is just great. Absolutely. Absolutely. I am so impressed with, with her, her life. She went from being a lawyer to being a, a wine expert. Now a, a barbecue chef. That's fantastic. Yeah. You kind of get the feeling, Jeff, there were certain people that whatever they set their minds to do, they do. And you kind of get the feeling that, well, I said to her, you know, if she wanted to be a major league baseball player or whatever, I mean, she seemed to be able to do whatever she sets her mind to. And that's incredible. Um, I wish I was like that. But, uh, you know, I have hard enough time being a decent podcaster. <laughs> but she uh, she was terrific. So hopefully everybody uh, enjoyed Bob Kendrick and Erica Blair. And we'll look forward to listening to part two of each of those on episode 131. Jeff, before we go, we are brought to you by Bet Online, And we'd also like to thank BaseballBBQ.com for grilling tools and accessories. Summer's coming. Grilling season's here. And it is time to get those special grilling tools. You need them anyway. Spatulas, tongs, the forks. I mean, they, they have some amazing things with baseball handles and they're engraved and uh, you, you got to go to baseballbbq.com and check them out. And of course, Jeff, we can't forget our friend Ray Sheehan, who has his new book out all about cooking on the big green egg. And of course, barbecue Buddha for his sauces and rubs. I mean, you just, you gotta, you can't go wrong with either of those companies. That's right. And Len, is that time? Oh, I, I, I hate when that time comes, Jeff. How do we end the show? We gonna end it. I guess this is, it makes it good because at least we end it in a great way. And that is with the poet, Shel Krakowski, the musician, Dave Dresser, with Baseball Always Brings You Home. Jeff, looking forward to seeing you on episode 131. Part two with Eric Blair and Bob Kendrick.